to speak the good news to those who are around us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. And I wanted to say a word of welcome, those of you who are visiting with us. We're so glad that you could be here today. It's such a joy to have you here at Cloverleaf Baptist. And our desire is to be a church that makes much of, uh, to be a church that makes much of Jesus as we make disciples for him. And we've been doing a study through, not so much verse by verse through the book of Acts, but hitting some high points as we think about uh, over a few weeks what our church should look like, what our church should be. Read the uh, first few verses of of Acts chapter 8, just to set the stage here. And we'll be sort of all over the book of Acts this morning as we think about this topic of evangelism. Begin in verse 1, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. That is Stephen. Stephen is martyred in the previous chapter. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and uh, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Recent days we've seen a number of headlines uh, in, in the news. Um, and I waited till this morning to kind of take a quick look again to see what has been uh, what has been going on. We've sort of watched in horror as we have seen the results and the climbing death toll from the wildfires in Hawaii. We've seen these horrifying images of entire towns reduced to ash. It's just hard to fathom uh, what has happened down there. This morning, the headlines were about hurricane. Uh, a hurricane bearing down on Southern California, which is very, very unusual. They don't get hurricanes over there. It's kind of normal for us here on the Gulf Coast. But it is quite scary if you're in Southern California where this never happens, and we want to be praying for them. But as you look at the news, it's very rare to have headlines in the news that are really positive and uplifting. Few of us log on every day to the news, wherever you get your news from or on the, whatever channel you go to, to sort of be encouraged. We're not like, man, I'm, I'm feeling kind of down. Let me turn on Channel 5 to see what can lift my spirits. Instead, you'll turn on the news and you'll hear about more shootings in Mobile. You'll hear about more scandals in Washington. You'll hear about an ongoing war in, in Ukraine, the death toll that's been reported to half a million, or casualty rated at half a million combined. Mind-boggling. I've heard about a, a coup in Niger. Depending on who you read, you'll hear dire, warning, dire warnings about climate change or government overreach or pollution on one hand and corruption on the other. And if you were to base your worldview on what you get in the news, which I, I don't recommend doing, you would conclude that we are undoubtedly living in the worst time in human history and we ought to try to roll the clocks back to the good old days when life expectancy was like 35 Air conditioning didn't exist, and you could have your, tr- your teeth extracted without Novocaine. Uh, just a little bit of perspective for you. But here's my point. We are living in a world that is drowning in a deep pool of bad news, bad news, bad news. 
We're in a world that is in desperate need of good news. And I don't just mean another human interest story about someone rescuing puppies. I mean good news that is more than just the fact that life expectancies have increased from 30 to north of 70 or that child mortality has dropped from 35% at one point to less than 1%. You see, even though we get those sort of like snippets of good news, we all have a deep sense that in spite of the great improvements in our living standards, praise God for air conditioning, something is deeply amiss with our world that one more air conditioning unit won't fix. You see, after all, no matter how good we have it, death rates are going to stay steady at 100%, no matter how long life expectancy increases to. No matter what improvements are made in governance in the world, human nature is obviously fundamentally flawed. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who quipped that original sin is the one doctrine of Christianity that can be empirically proven. You see, we are naturally selfish. We are naturally violent. We are naturally deceptive. And lustful. No amount of education, no amount of culture, no amount of entertainment or medicine or therapy can change what is fundamentally broken in human nature, though it may restrain it. So in this world that is awash in, in bad news comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word gospel translates the Greek word euangelion, you means good, angelos, message. It's a good message. It is good news. It's literally what the word is. It's the gloriously good news, the desperately needed news, that God has acted decisively in history to solve our sin problem, the the malady that underlies all of the other pathologies in society. He's acted to solve that sin problem, to change our hearts, to alter our eternities, and ultimately one day to remake this world. But here's the deal. Good news is only good news if it's told, if it is heralded, if it is understood, if it is believed. Imagine you're dying of some disease and there is a simple medication that could save your life. It does you no good if you don't know about it. It does you no good if you don't take it. This task of telling the good news, we call evangelism. It comes from that word euangelion, just replace the U with a V. Evangelism, it's, the, it's, it's that act of telling people the good news of Jesus, telling them the gospel message whereby they are saved. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we got kind of the framework for the entire book. You'll receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses for me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's sort of the, the outline of the book of Acts, if you will. It starts with the apostles being a witness to Christ in Jerusalem and in Judea, Here in the verses we just read, we see by means of persecution, the gospel then goes out to Samaria, which is sort of the the, the town next door that nobody really likes. And then we'll see later on in the book with the ministry of Paul going to sort of the uttermost parts of the earth, as they understood it, going to the Gentile Roman world of the day. And that task continues even now as the gospel goes out to, to other countries and other people groups. Part of our mission as a church... Part of our mission as Cloverleaf Baptist Church, as we make disciples, is evangelism. Evangelism is sort of the beginning process of making disciples, of telling people about Jesus and calling them to repent and believe in him. And then discipleship is that lifelong process of following after Christ. We must be about the business of telling the gospel. And this is not just we, as in me up here on the, behind the pulpit, but us as a church family, 
declaring this good news. We must be about the business of telling the gospel, of telling sinners of what Christ has done for them. So what is evangelism? What does biblical evangelism look like? See, there's a lot of well-intentioned things that are done in the name of evangelism. Some clearly present the gospel. Some confuse the gospel. Some inoculate people to the gospel. We want to make sure that we are doing responsible biblical evangelism. And here's the thing as well. Uh, In my prayer, I prayed that we would not merely just walk out of here with sort of low-grade guilt, like, oh, yeah, I need to be telling more people about Jesus and I need to be doing more. I I want us to leave today encouraged. Now, full disclosure, this message became so long, I've split it into two parts. We're going to do part one this morning and part two tonight. So the bulletin is, uh, it says we're going to do Jeremiah. We're not going to do Jeremiah tonight. We're going to finish this message. I was trying to cut it down to manageable size for us to be able to get out of here by like three o'clock today. And there's just too much of this. I just didn't know what to cut. So we're going to break it into two parts. I encourage all of you, even if you don't normally come back on Sunday nights, this will be a great week to come back on Sunday nights so you can get the whole message. Because you might say, I, I went to church today, I got my requisite sermon. Well, you only got half a sermon because the rest of it will be, will be tonight. So you need to come back uh, this evening to get the third and fourth points. So let's just walk through some building blocks, if you will, of a biblical understanding of evangelism. And the first building block is this, that God defines the task. Evangelism is not just whatever we want it to be. It's not just, hey, we as Christians are going to just sort of go out and do things in the world and we're going to call it evangelism. We're going to go out and dig wells or feed the hungry. Those are good things that Christians can and many times should be doing. But what is evangelism? Well, let me give you some things that evangelism is and by implication some things that evangelism is not. If you're taking notes, it's all under that first heading. Evangelism first is a verbal declaration of the good news. Back in our text, Acts 8 and verse 4, it says, Therefore they that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And by the way, the word that's translated preaching is the word. They went out evangelizing. They went about gospeling the word. Like this is obviously a verbal task. They're not just simply saying we're, we're living sort of good, noble lives before the community around us. And that's going to sort of just tell people the gospel. The gospel is not a drama that we live out. It is a message that we declare. Now, I did not just say that you can live however you want. How we live does matter. Okay, our testimony uh, before the word, our reputation does matter. But the gospel must be declared with words. It must be made known. Evangelism is more than, though not less than, having what we might call a good testimony or a good reputation. Let's be honest. If you have a horrible reputation of being a cheat and being a swindler and a person who says that you fixed people's cars when you didn't really fix their car, people will not be interested in hearing the message that you want to tell them about. Hypocrisy is not a good billboard for the gospel. You ever get a really awesome product, but then you look at the commercial and you're like, man, that's a really terrible commercial? An ungodly life is a terrible commercial for a perfect product. Some of the verbs that go along with preaching the gospel, I did this massive study of all of the words that are used to describe teaching and preaching in Acts. Sometimes we see teaching being the verb, so the gospel is a message that must be explained. So Paul will go in somewhere where they don't know, and he will teach the gospel. He will explain it. Terms need definitions. Sometimes he reasons in Acts chapter 17. He would go into the synagogue, and he would reason with people. The gospel is not just this emotional message that you're hearing someone talk, and a wave of emotion sweeps over you, and you're like, well, I guess I got in. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a message that has facts and has information, and it makes sense, and there's persuasion involved. That's another verb that is used in Acts in, context of, in the context of people declaring the gospel, is persuading. 
pleading with people. It's more than just a presentation, and it's certainly more than a faithful life. So God is the one who defines this task, a verbal declaration that involves teaching and explaining and persuading and reasoning with people and declaring. Here's another aspect of the task that God defines for us. It is relating what Jesus has done to save us. Not just retelling your personal story. Uh, Now, telling your personal story is a great way to start a gospel conversation. But the gospel message is not just, when I was five years old, I came under the conviction of my sin, and I went to my mom and asked her how to be saved, and she explained the gospel to me, and I repented and trusted in Christ. That's my personal testimony of how I came to understand the gospel, and it might make people sort of relate, I need to do the same. But the gospel is not simply telling your story, it is telling the story. It's telling what Jesus has done to save us. Look in verse 5 here. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached what? Christ unto them. Philip didn't go down to the city and preach Philip to them. Okay, your story can be a great way to get into the gospel. You can read, the, read in the account in uh, John chapter 4 of the woman at the well, and she goes back and says, see, here's a man who told me everything I ever did. And they come out and hear Jesus. And then the text says, and many more believed on Jesus because of what they heard Jesus say. What people need is not you as they need Jesus. That's not to discount the value of knowing how to share your story of how you came to faith. There is a place to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a place to say, listen, and I will declare what the Lord has done for my soul. But we've got to get past our story to talking about Jesus. By the way, later on in Acts, Paul will stand before various kings and rulers. And one of the things he will do is to tell them exactly what Jesus did for him. I was going on the road to Damascus in a bright light, and Saul, why do you persecute me? He will use his testimony as a vehicle to tell the gospel. But evangelism is more than just giving your life story. Here's another thing that evangelism is and isn't. It is calling sinners to Jesus, not just inviting friends to church. Again, Philip goes and he preaches Christ to them. I think it is a wonderful thing to invite people to church. And there are folks who are sitting here today who you came and visited this church or visited another church when you were not a Christian and you heard the gospel being preached and explained and sung and and presented around you, and that that was instrumental in you coming to faith. Praise God for that. But can I just be be candid? I think sometimes we, we want to get a little bit lazy with our evangelism and we'll say, okay, I'm going to invite my neighbor to come to church And then I'll let sort of the pastor take over, and he can explain the gospel, and then he can sort of follow up with a visit, and I have sort of done my part. By all means, invite your friends and your neighbors and bring them with you to church. The gathering of the church is the gathering of believers, but it's not just for believers. There's an expectation in the New Testament that those who don't know Jesus will come in and will be convicted of God's presence in our midst. Invite people to church and then follow up with conversation so you can tell them about Christ. Say, hey, what did you think of that message today? Get a conversation going. Have them over to lunch afterwards. But inviting someone to church is not the same as inviting them to Jesus. Uh, I'll add to that. Sometimes I will hear folks say, could you pray for you know, my, my family, for my cousins, for my kids? They're not in church. And I'm willing to pray for them. But the issue is not that they're not in church. Being in church does not make you a Christian, Right? The issue that they very well may need that you you may be scared to confront is they're not actually regenerate. 
the reason they have no interest in the things of God, could it be that they need to be born again? We sometimes need to be honest with what may be going on in, in people's hearts. Again, by all means, invite people to church. By all means, share your testimony. But we want to get beyond testimony and a church invitation to Christ. The heart of the gospel is Jesus. And that's what we've got to aim at, calling people not only to accept the facts of Christianity, but to embrace Christ himself. And then here's the the last part of this that I want to draw out from Acts 8 before we move on to our, our next point where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Evangelism is the responsibility of all Christians, not just missionaries, not just pastors, not just sort of the professionals. So I love this in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Look at this. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And then it's very clear um, earlier that it was everyone except the apostles. So we're not just talking about the, you know, the leaders, the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. These were the ordinary members, if you will, of the church at Jerusalem. So they've all been gathering. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and they're, they're, they're just celebrating being together. Persecution hits. And it's like the coals of the fire have been scattered every which way. And I love this. It's not just the apostles who are preaching Christ. It's not just Philip. He's just sort of one example of many. It's not just Stephen. It's the average church member. A statement Paul makes over in 1 Thessalonians, which I, I, I find similarly encouraging and challenging he's, he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, which is a young sort of baby church. Paul got run out of town because of persecution. He's really concerned about them. He gets this message back that they're doing really well. And he says in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. So we need not to speak anything. The average ordinary Christian in the church of Thessalonica was so busy telling people about Jesus, the, the message was being spread along the, the roads and onto the ships. But Paul's like, we don't even need to tell people about Jesus because you guys are doing such a good job. In Acts, we see the apostles preaching Jesus. We see deacons like Stephen and Philip preaching Jesus. And we see ordinary Christians preaching Jesus. So the original mandate of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall be witnesses unto me, is not just given to the the 11 apostles and Paul, 12 apostles. It's not just given to leaders and to pastors. It's not a professionalized ministry. It is the, the ministry and the responsibility of every Christian. In other words, if you are a Christian this morning, you are an evangelist. If you are a Christian, you have been entrusted with the most valuable message in all the universe. You've been commissioned with the greatest task imaginable of taking that message and speaking it and sharing it with other people. Evangelism in the book of Acts and in the New Testament is mostly a go-and-tell lifestyle. We don't have very many examples of a come-and-see event. Uh, again, there's nothing wrong with people coming and seeing what's here and coming to faith in Christ. But by and large, the, 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 the Great Commission is go and preach the gospel. Not just, hey, let's have a big event and try to attract lots of people so they can hear the gospel. But us scattered in our daily lives, making Christ known. So look around the room, there's 65, 70 people here today. All of us going separate directions once we walk out that door. 
Tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., let's just say, think about where you will be. You will be interacting with people that I will never run into. You'll be, running, you'll be interacting with people that someone across the room from you may never meet. You're going to come home at the end of the day at 5 o'clock, and there's going to be neighbors around you that you're going to see and have conversation with that others in this room. I, I wouldn't even like to venture a guess how many different unique individuals will we all interact with in the course of this week. That is your mission field. That's where God has placed you. But if evangelism is the act of declaring the gospel, it's not enough to just declare if we don't know what the gospel is. So the second big building block where we will spend the remainder of our time today is this. God not only defines the task, it's telling people about Jesus, God determines, God defines the message of evangelism. What is it that we need to tell people? So I think this might be a big hang-up for some of us, like, good, I need to win people to Christ and go make disciples. Okay, what do I need to tell them? What do people need to know? Like, what, what's the message that, that I'm supposed to be heralding and declaring and sharing and making known? It's a great question. Again, in our text, we, we see those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That doesn't mean that they were going and t- teaching the Bible verse by verse necessarily. That phrase, the word, in, in, in Acts and in the New Testament, often is shorthand for the gospel message that is sort of at the heart of Scripture. Sometimes it refers to the Bible as a whole, but often it refers specifically to that message of the gospel. When it says Philip went and preached Christ, that's not something different. Okay? We're talking about Christ. We're talking about this message that comes from God that we are to declare. So to work this out, I want to just give you an example, again, from Scripture rather than something we come up with. So let's go over and look at an example of someone who is doing that. So go a few pages to the right to Acts chapter 17. There's a number of places we could go because we get examples of messages that the apostles give all over the place. We could have gone to Acts 2 where we were a few weeks ago. We could go to Acts 3. We could go to Acts 13. But I want to give you just sort of one succinct example of this message that we, that we are to declare. Now, here's the thing that you will find if you were to just read through the book of Acts this afternoon and look at all of the presentations of the gospel. There is not a one-size-fits-all spiel that these guys give where they come and it's like, let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And then they go off into their little sales pitch and then be like, would you like to believe in Jesus? And it's sort of like this, the, the, the message is sort of adapted to the audience depending on what the needs are, but the core message doesn't change. So when Peter or Paul are speaking to a Jewish audience who knows the Old Testament really well, they can take some things for granted. They don't have to go back to say, like, hey, God's the creator. Their audience already agrees with them on that. But when they're speaking to a Gentile audience, a pagan audience that worships idols, they have to sort of back up to square one. That's really instructive for us. When we're talking to people, we have to know where are they at, where are they entering into this conversation. But there are some basic facts of, the, of this message that we see worked out in Acts chapter 17. The setting here is Paul is standing uh, on a place called Mars Hill, which is this shrine to all of these different deities in the city of Athens. And he's looking around at all of them, and they've got one just in case they missed out to the unknown God. Like, well, if there's a God out there we don't know about, here's sort of a, 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 an altar to him as well. So verse 24 Paul's kind of gotten over his icebreaker introduction. Notice what he says here. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Paul starts with God. 
Other places we could go, the apostles start with, the God of Abraham has made these promises to us when they're speaking to Jewish people. But this is maybe really obvious, but it needs to be said. The gospel starts with God. It is a message that comes from God that he defines. It's about God. It is centered on God. You see, if we're going to be right with God, that's what the message is all about, being right with God, we need to understand who he is. It doesn't do us much good to just say, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life when people's understanding of that word God is just some dude way up in the sky somewhere who's sort of indulgent but not very involved in our world. We need to lay a a foundation as to who this God is. Notice the facts that Paul highlights here. He's speaking to a very non-Christian, non-Jewish audience. So he zeroes in on the fact that God is the creator, that God has made us and everything and this world. And he reasons from that to say that, okay, if God created the world, then he is outside of the world, so he doesn't live inside a temple, right? And if we're made in God's image, then it doesn't make sense to think that God is sort of a stone or a statue or an animal. He doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives to all life and breath and, and all things. This is a very profound sort of succinct description of who God is, that he is without beginning and he is without end, that he is uncaused, that he is the I am who simply is. Now, we also can reason from this. If God made us and everything in this world, he's the creator. It's his universe and it's his rules. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. He's the one to whom we owe our existence. And so it follows that he is the just judge to whom we will all one day answer. Look what he says in verse 31. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's the creator and he's the judge. We are morally accountable to this eternal, glorious, sovereign God. This God who will render a verdict on every thought and action and word and motive. And that verdict will be eternal and it will be righteous. There's some basic facts as you share the gospel with people. I think this is where we need to start, especially in a post-Christian society and even in a culturally Christian area like Mobile. We can't take God for granted. We can't assume that when we say God, we mean the same thing. A lot of people's understanding of God is sort of just sort of sentimentality, is just sort of homespun religion. We might need to start with Genesis 1.1. He's the creator, that he's the judge, that he's the king. Sometimes people will say, nobody can judge me except God, as if that's a, the standards are lower now. Oh, the opposite is true. This God about about whom we are talking is infinitely holy. Listen, if we get our understanding of who God is wrong, we get the gospel wrong, right? If God is not holy and just, what is the point of the cross? If God is not infinite and eternal and good, then hell seems like this massive overreaction that makes no sense. So as you enter into conversation with your neighbors and coworkers, it might take a while of laying the foundation of who's God, what is he like? It's not something we can just sort of skip to get to the next point in the Romans road uh, if it's not established. But he moves on to a, another facet of the gospel, which is understanding who man is. He goes from talking about God to talking about man in verse 26. Okay, Acts 17, we're still here. The same God, okay, who is has given to all life and breath and all things, hath made of one blood, or, or, or some texts read of one man, all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, 
if happily, if perhaps they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto stone or, or, or I'm sorry, gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Paul moves from laying the foundation of here's what God is like to now here's what man is like. And some facts about mankind. And when I say man, I'm not talking just about gender. I'm talking about humanity as a whole. Humankind, okay? What is man in comparison to God? If we are going to understand the good news, we've got to understand who we are. We've got to see ourselves as lost and sinners in need of redemption for the cross to, to, to make any sense. But drill down a little bit more. Did you notice how Paul highlighted the fact that man has a dignity? So we're God's offspring. That's not to say that, oh, the universal fatherhood of God and we're all children of God. But it's a way of poetically describing the fact that we have been created by God, like God, for God. The Bible talks about the fact that we are made in the very image of God. One thing that is quite stunning when you read the early chapters of this book is the fact that the apostles are preaching to the very people who crucified Christ. If ever there were an audience that you would be like, "Mm, they're beyond hope, let's just write them off. It would have been those guys, the people who literally looked Jesus in the face and rejected him and crucified him. To me, the very fact that Peter and Paul and Philip and Stephen address even the murderers of Christ, the fact that they would call them to repent assumes something very, very profound. That people are made in God's image and have dignity and have choice. Now, that's really, they didn't just say, oh, those people are horrible, let's just throw rocks at them, call them a bunch of names and move on. But they approached their audience, even a hostile audience, with respect and dignity. I think that's instructive to us. We can be so hostile to the culture around us and so upset about what is happening in our world that we approach, approach evangelism sort of ready to fight and combat and argue and yell and call names. But Paul doesn't do that. On Mars Hill, he goes even further. He quotes a pagan poet named Eratus, calling mankind the offspring of God. He demolishes this racist idea of blood and soil, saying there's one race, the human race. He declares that this one race is under the authority of God and desperately needs to be redeemed, that God has appointed someone to judge the world, that we're all in the same boat together, and that boat is, is sinking. Right, skin color and ethnicity, whether you are Greek or Roman or Jewish or black or white, has no bearing on your need for Christ. As we evangelize, as we tell people the gospel, it is not with mere mortals we speak. The people that you are sharing the gospel with are immortal souls who will spend somewhere forever. They're souls that are infinitely valuable and passionately loved and made in God's image. When we evangelize, the goal is not simply to to sort of check boxes and put notches in our belt belt or get some scalps. I've kind of heard evangelism sometimes put that way. We went out soul winning and we had 36 professions of faith. I am all for seeing great numbers of people come to faith, but it's not a competition. We're talking about individual souls loved by God. But another fact about mankind that we we need to understand as we evangelize 
is that man is depraved. Okay, this is, this is implied here when Paul says God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent of what? Repent of sin. The, the evangelists in the book of Acts pull no punches as they declare the guilt of those to whom they're preaching. Just pop back to Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching here in, in, the, in the temple courts to a huge audience once again. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 15, Acts chapter 3. He says, but ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. He is laying it on the line. He's looking at these people eyeball to eyeball, respectfully but very clearly calling out their sin. You rejected your Messiah. You crucified your Messiah. Not as a way to say you guys are beyond hope, but then to turn around and say, repent and God will forgive you. Very clearly laying out sin. Just over a page in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. Here's Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. Again, the same council that in, a, in sort of a kangaroo court had condemned Christ just weeks before. Be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole, very clearly laying out the guilt of sin. Acts chapter 5 and verse 30. Um, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Stephen does this in, in Acts chapter 7 and on and on. But it is not just the, the Jewish people who rejected Christ who are guilty. and The rest of us, we didn't do that. In Romans chapter 3, Paul lays out this ironclad indictment against all of humanity. As we have before concluded, both Jew and Gentile, that both are under sin. He, he, he quotes scripture after scripture to, to show that there is none righteous, no, not one. We can't look around at different groups or different people to say, well, I'm not as bad as them, so I must be good. All of us have been condemned under the law of God. Romans 3 verse 19 says that every mouth is unstopped and the whole world has become guilty before God, has been condemned before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The gospel, beloved, is only good news if we can glimpse and grasp the awful depths of the bad news. Until we... And until the people we're talking to understand that they really are sinners. And, and let me just clarify something. Sin is not just, here's the standard, and oh, I barely missed the standard. Like, ah, oh, yeah, here I am, but I'm at least better than all the rest of the people. Understanding that we are sinners is understanding that I have violated God's law and therefore deserve God's wrath. Until someone is, is to a place of understanding, I absolutely deserve the wrath of God. They do not yet understand that they are sinners in the way the Bible says it. See, I've, I've run into this where you evangelize and you tell someone, you, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They're like, oh, I know I'm not perfect. And then you ask them, do you, if you were to stand before God, would you be guilty or innocent? They'll say, well, I'd be innocent because I'm a good person. It's not just saying I'm imperfect. It is say that I am a rebel against God who deserves his holy wrath, which is eternity in hell. Our sin is not simply passive failure to measure up to perfection. It is our active rebellion against God's law. It does not merely involve our deeds, you know, the things that we, we, we would actually do. 
But Jesus tells us that even goes down to our desires. Even when we don't carry out our desires, it's not only our actions, but also our, our affections, what we love is bent away from God. It's not only what we actually do, but what we secretly want. The Bible's diagnosis of our sinful condition is not just, oh, look at the bad things that you do and the lies that you tell and the people that you yell at. But it goes down to the heart, to our very nature. We're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners by nature. Imagine if every secret desire that you have, like somebody at work, you know, like said something bad about you and you're like, the thought just passes your mind briefly. Man, I could just kind of clobber them over the head. Imagine if every secret desire were brought to fruition. Imagine if every fit of rage led to murder, if every lustful thought came to its logical conclusion of adultery, if every flit of envy led to robbery. That is how God sees our sin. He sees not only the end result, but also the desire that could or would lead to that if left unarrested. If that is the divine diagnosis of our souls, we are without hope. And when we evangelize I don't mean getting in people's faces and beating them over the head. You're a horrible, bad person. But taking the law of God, taking even the Ten Commandments as a, as a guideline, and helping people see all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just a little bit, but we're 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. Or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't do that. We love ourselves. And because we're depraved, we are doomed. This is the this third fact about man. We're recipients of God's wrath. We cannot hope to some, some vague desire that God is just going to let us off the hook on judgment day. No, he is going to judge. God is too holy to overlook sin. God is too loving to leave our mistreatment of his image bearers unpunished. He is too just to let wrongdoing be ignored. He must judge because of his holy and perfect nature. He would not be a good God if he let, us, or let our sin just go. His nature demands it. His holiness so abhors sin that he cannot do otherwise. You see, without Christ, and this is all the bad news side of, of, the, of the, the gospel, we've got to get to a place where we recognize that without Christ, by the way, what a good reminder for us who are not, or who are, who are believers now. We're teetering over the brink of eternal doom if it were not for Christ. We're ever dangling over endless hell, facing Everlasting torment under the wrath of God. And that is what we deserve. That is not a mean, nasty God. That is a good and holy God and his posture towards sin. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, you, you, you don't have that assurance that your sins are forgiven. You are walking above the flames of hell as it were on a bridge of paper. Your condition is terrifyingly precarious. It's like somebody hanging onto a little weed as they dangle over the chasm of Grand Canyon, one heartbeat away from eternity. It is only the mercy and kindness of God that gives us each another breath and another opportunity to turn to Him. It is only His long suffering that puts up with our daily rebellion, our selfish ignorance, our willful blindness to His glory. Now, I'm spending time here because one of the aspects of our fallenness is we like to think of ourselves as being really good people. 
And the saying, I think, is quite true. Before you can get somebody saved, you have to get them lost. The gospel is only good news if we recognize that our condition has no other solution except Christ. Which brings us to this third fact of the message. And this is really, if we want to say, what is the gospel? Here it is, it's Christ. Philip went to Samaria and he preached Christ to them. The the, the finished work of Jesus to be the solution to to our depravity and to our doom and to our, our lostness and our sin. As horrible and as dark and as almost depressing our condition is without Christ, the gospel is infinitely more glorious. The mercy of Christ is greater than our sin. His grace is more. So to preach the gospel is to preach Christ. Now Paul starts at it here in, on his sermon on Mars. So he's pointed a day where he will judge the world of righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men that he has raised him from the dead. And then they interrupt him. He doesn't get to finish his sermon. Let me give you another example. So let's go back to Acts chapter 3, another one of these messages in Acts. And I want you just to see the, the facts that Peter highlights here about Christ. He says a little bit more than uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he, he, he kind of unpacks that a little bit more. And, and, and who is this Jesus, and what is it that he has done? Acts chapter 3, we read verses 14 and 15 a minute ago to, to say, here's an example of him highlighting sin, but let's reread them. Notice the terms that he uses to describe Jesus. You denied the Holy One and the Just One. Verse 15, you killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead. Peter is not just presenting Jesus as a good teacher. He's not simply saying, here's Jesus, he was a great miracle worker. Though Jesus was a great teacher and a great miracle worker, he's calling him the Holy One. To a Jewish audience, that should have sent off alarm bells, that should have sort of double-clicked on a link for them to go back to the book of Isaiah to say the Holy One of Israel is Yahweh, the one who is holy, holy, holy. That term, the Holy One and the Just, That phrase, the prince of life, is to say this, that Jesus is the divine son of God. He's not just a man, but he is truly God in the flesh. The Jesus that we declare is not the Jesus who's a great man. The Jesus we declare is not simply the one who sort of came to show us the way of God. He is the one who is God in the flesh. We've got to be clear about that, beloved. We've got to present him as God's son. He's the author of life. He's the holy one of Israel. He is the righteous one. He is the eternal son who is equal with the father. He never had a beginning. But he also highlights the fact that he's the crucified savior. Every presentation of the gospel we see in Acts will highlight the fact that Jesus died. He's the crucified savior. Now, notice down in verses 19 and 20 here, Peter goes on to link this fact that Jesus died with the fact that we need to repent and have our sins forgiven. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Right, isn't that interesting? There's some connection between this Jesus who is crucified and your sins being erased and being dealt with. A Jewish audience would have made the link, made that connection quite readily. How were sins dealt with before sacrifice, a substitute. Jesus' death on the cross is not just a martyrdom, is not just an execution, not just another one of thousands of crucifixions that happened on a regular basis in the Roman Empire. It is the sacrifice 
that turns away the wrath of God, that pays the penalty for sin, so that God can justly forgive our sin. There's a direct, a direct link from the cross work of Jesus to our forgiveness of our sins. We, we laid out the fact that we are depraved and we are doomed and we need this forgiveness. Some solution must be presented to our sin. And that solution is the cross of Jesus. If you go to someone and say, Jesus died for you, if, if we don't know that we are sinners, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. James Denny gives a, a great illustration of this. He says, imagine you're sitting out on a pier and you're just kind of hanging out and then somebody comes running down the pier screaming, I'm going to save you and leaps into the water and then drowns. Would you say that that was a reasonable sacrifice? Be like, well, no, that's tragic. The person was well-intentioned, but I wasn't drowning. It's as if, on the other hand, you fell into the water and you don't know how to swim and someone leaps into the water to save your life and then subsequently drowns then you will say, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The death of Jesus is completely sort of meaningless and tragic and pointless if it is not done in the place of sinners. Paul describes it beautifully in Romans 5. He says, for a righteous man, nobody would dare to die, but he says, but God commends, God demonstrates, God proves his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, that it was the just dying for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Jesus dying as our substitute. I love the lyrics to the hymn we sing. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. As we sang this morning, we stand forgiven at the cross because of the cross. The cross of Jesus must be explained. Christ died for our sins in our place as our substitute, bearing our wrath, paying our fine. This we must make clear when we share the gospel. But what is also highlighted about Christ throughout the book of Acts is the fact that Jesus is the resurrected sovereign. These gospel presentations and acts never leave Jesus in the grave. In fact, the good, the good news part of the good news is that, hey, this Jesus who died, who was the Messiah, praise God, he is risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, offering forgiveness and unleashing the gift of the Holy Spirit on his people. That's the good news. The fact is that Jesus did not stay dead, but he arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he is indeed the sovereign Lord of heaven and in earth. Acts 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He's saying this is the one who has been raised from the dead. Verse 21 makes the same point whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He is going to make all things new. The presentation here is not just that Jesus is alive, but Jesus is king. He's not just the Savior who dies on the cross who will invite you just as you are. He is the king who rules from heaven's throne, who demands your allegiance. You see, when we give the gospel in even its most bare-bones form, we must speak of Jesus as the Son of God, 
as the Savior on the cross and as the sovereign ruling and reigning from heaven. Uh, You may go into the detail that I just went in, or maybe some of these things are understood and you can pull back a little bit. But if we have not spoken of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, beloved, you have not given the gospel. It grieves me sometimes to hear well-intentioned. You know, an arena will be full of people and they'll say, we want to give you the good news of Jesus, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan Will you believe. And they never mention the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. We cannot leave that out and still have the gospel. Just as you cannot have a, you can't remove the beating heart out of someone's chest and still have life. So what is the response to this? Look at verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The demand that is made by the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Repenting is turning from sin. Now, here's an important point. Evangelism is not simply conveying the facts. It's conveying the facts and then appealing for a decision. It's not simply conveying the fact of God's authority and our lostness and Christ's work to redeem us. The gospel makes a demand that we we must respond to in order to be forgiven. Now, there's two parts of this response that we cannot separate. Acts 20.21, Paul says, I went publicly and house to house, proclaiming repentance toward God, turning away from sin, and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. These go together in Acts. It's never just a a matter of bare intellectual assent, nor is the response ever a go and try really hard to change your life. It is rather have this change of heart and put your trust in Christ. They go together, two sides of a coin. So what is repentance? Repentance is having an inward change. It's not, I'm going to go clean my life. I'm going to make a list of habits that I need to kick so that Jesus will forgive me. It is having an inward change about sin. It's having an inward change about Christ and about God. It is a loathing of our sin. Repentance is born out of a conviction that I really am a sinner who's in a whole heap of trouble with God. Repentance is not simply feeling sorry. It's not simply feeling remorse. And it's certainly not doing some good deeds to try to reform your life. That would be a works salvation. But it is indeed a change of heart about sin. We come come to Christ to be saved from sin. If there's no repentance, what are you saved from? I want to just bear this out because repentance is often rejected today. Acts 2.38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We looked at Acts 3.19, Acts 5 and verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 8 verse 22. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Acts 11 verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. We go to Acts 17.30, Acts 20.21, Acts 26.20. This is an essential element of our response to the gospel, is to repent, to turn away from sin. We need to banish from our minds this popular notion that you can become a Christian without repentance, that you can have assurance without fruit, that you can have Jesus as Savior while rejecting Him as Lord. Now, the other part of this is faith. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. They go hand in hand. They go close together. Here's what's interesting. That text we just read in Acts 3, verse 19. He says, repent. A few verses later, chapter 4, verse 4. 
Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. So Peter says, repent, and the people repent. And then later on, Luke summarizes this repenting as believing. To say that, not to say that these are identical, but to say these are inseparable. That word believe, that verb believe appears 37 times, and the noun faith shows up 16 times. Here's my point. Where faith and belief are mentioned in Acts, repentance is assumed. And where repentance is mentioned, faith is assumed. We can't have one without the other. The most famous example in the book of Acts of the the response of the gospel is Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi. There's an earthquake at midnight. The doors are opened up and they don't leave when they could have left. And the jailer is about to take his own life because by losing his prisoners, he has forfeited his life. And, And Paul says to him, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And the man is under just profound conviction, like this life and death situation. He's seen this incredible display of, of courage from the, from the apostle and from Silas. And he comes in trembling, the sense that the presence of God is there, the sense that I really do deserve to die, the sense that these guys that I have mistreated are, are not the wicked criminals I thought they were. He comes in trembling and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe. He doesn't say go do works. He doesn't say you have to go get baptized and join a church and go do some penance or put money in an offering plate or buy indulgences or start helping little old ladies cross the street. He says, believe. Put your trust and your reliance not in yourself, but in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just naked assent but as trusting Jesus as he is, a recognition of his lordship is another way of saying, repent. You're not the boss of your life anymore. Renounce all human works. Renounce all self-effort. Renounce all claims to moral goodness, to religious pedigree, and run to Christ. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. No works added to it. If we could add a single work to our salvation and take credit for it, we would get the glory. If you're here today and you are not saved, there are no religious hoops to jump through. You don't have to walk any aisles or raise any hands or say a certain number of words or prayers. Though you may express your faith that way. But there's not a religious hoop you jump through. You come to Christ in faith. Nothing else will suffice. Being sprinkled or dedicated or baptized or anointed does nothing for your soul. Having a religious experience or a spiritual ecstasy or an inward peace, those are not evidences of new life, and they are certainly not substitutes for saving faith. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Trust in his finished work on the cross and that alone. Believe in his resurrection. Turn to Jesus today. Paul puts it very simply in Romans 10. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You call out to him as one who is desperate, who is drowning in sin, and he will save. You call out in repentance, you call out in faith, he will save. Now, it's not that the calling is sort of what does the deal. It's Jesus who saves, not the calling. It's like if you were to have a heart attack and someone were to call 911. The call, in a sense, saves your life, But in another sense, it doesn't. It's the paramedics who come. It's the defibrillator that that sort of gets your heart going again. It's It's the help that is 
provided through the call? You call out to Christ, you, 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 you plead with him as a sinner, and he will save. Sometimes that prayer might say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It might be uttered verbally, it may not be uttered verbally, but it is the cry of faith. That's the message of evangelism, beloved. That's the message that must be on our lips that we must know so well that when the opportunity arises, we can enter into a conversation, whether it's a few minutes or a longer discussion, whether it's drawn out in uh, multiple conversations or just a passing one that you have on an airplane, to be able to tell people what Christ has done. So what are the basic facts? It's God as the creator and the judge. It's man as dignified, made in God's image, as depraved, as doomed. It's Christ as the eternal divine son of God, as the savior who dies on the cross, as the resurrected sovereign. And the response is repent, turn from sin, and trust in Christ. It's a simple message. A child under conviction of the Holy Spirit can respond to it just as much as someone who has lived a full life. Anyone who will turn to Christ will be forgiven. So if you're here today, and you don't have that assurance of your sins being forgiven, I would urge you, I would beg you, I would plead with you to settle that. And for those here who are believers, let us not forget, this is the message by which we're saved. It's so easy to fall back into looking to our own sort of goodness, and I'm a good Christian, and I go to church. But don't forget, we're, we're lost sinners without Jesus. And may God help us to declare this message to a lost world around us. Father, We praise you that you are a God who saves. We praise you that salvation is from.